Welcome back to the Rex Chapman Show with super dope, super cool, Josh Hopkins, my homeboy. Episode 31. Uh, who are some famous 31s, Josh? You got to go with Reggie Miller. Uh, Reggie Miller. I got to go with my all-time favorite 31. University of Kentucky, Samuel Paul Bowie. Sam yes. Bowie, baby. Yes. Boo. Yes, and number 31. Uh, we've had a, a great 31 on the show. We have? From Jenkins. Ferguson Jenkins, yep. our Fergie. Yep. That yep. is our mm. Fergie. Yep. Um, uh, so, yeah. um, oh, <laughs> check out our, our places. Uh, yeah. Huh? Okay. You're just across from me, right? The hey, rag. Just show them we're in the same place. Shut up, yeah. shut up, Josh. I'm yeah. on. I'm oh, on. Sorry. Yeah. So uh, uh, I saw last time you were set up in your place <laughs> in Brooklyn. I was in my bedroom last time, and I saw. I was like, "Looks like he's in my house." So today, as a surprise, I set up. I set up in the same well, sort of corner of my spot in Austin. There's even, there's even a building in between the window. There's the pole. For people that don't know, Josh, people tease Josh and I because uh, we're both pretty idiotic. And uh, we people tease us saying, well, if you both had you both have half a brain, right half and left half. Mm-hmm. And Josh has recently moved to Austin. I've recently moved to Brooklyn. And apparently we picked yeah, the same house. <laughs> and we wore the same hoodie today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh snap! Uh, this is great, yeah, but it does look like we were it just, just mirror with each ear. I put it up like this, a little show. Oh, it's great. Here we are perfect. That's great. Oh, you need to get you nope. a Peloton, son. That's right. Nobody Nobody. cares but us. Nobody cares but us. Mm -hmm. Uh, Episode thirty-one, buddy. Uh, By the way, book club. Um, This week, I, I, I did not managed to get to anything i was moving and it was kind of so i didn't what about you did you read anything this week uh no i don't like to read because it harkens back to all my insecurities when i uh, had a hard time reading at first and then my friends were faster than me so it makes me feel bad about myself so i don't read it all so that's been book club okay guest today is a former 11-year nba center with the wizards thunder and hawks but maybe most importantly he's a writer host of the rematch with Eton Thomas for basketballnews.com. But he's, he's an author, the author of P- Police Brutality and White Supremacy, The Fight Against American Traditions. Details of police brutality and white supremacy are what I want to talk about today. And I not only want to talk, welcome, Eton. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I definitely appreciate it. We've also got... Raymond Santana, uh, arrested as a young man, spent many years in prison, member of the Central Park Five. And Raymond, I, I've watched so much on you. I know Josh has as well. Uh, it's a real honor to have you here today. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered that you would come on the show. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's an honor to be here. Very humble. I appreciate that. Uh, um, so many questions. First, Eton, uh, you know, we both have similar backgrounds in basketball. Um, you, you're unlike many of the athletes in an NBA locker room. And I want to know when you started 
at what age and where did it come from? Did you have parents that were teaching you about world issues that maybe some of us weren't learning? Uh, at what age did you realize you you had a real fascination and interest in injustice? You know, it's interesting. It really started at such a young age. Um, and I detail a lot of those stories uh, in my book, in this book and in my previous book, We Matter, Athletes and Activism. Um, and, you know, in the story, I even went all the way back to 1989. Um, I was a young cat then. And I remember, you know, I was I was born in New York, um, but I moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma when I was younger. My father got transferred with American Airlines, but I spent all my summers in New York. So, you know, in the book and when I was interviewing Raymond Santana for the for the uh, for the book, it was like recapping where I was there when all of that happened. I was in in Harlem. You know, I, I, I talked about being in the park and and seeing all the police come and start rounding up you know, black and brown teenagers um, just immediately. Like I, I remember looking at the news and seeing Trump um, call for the death penalty and talking to my grandmother and my grandfather. And, you know, my grandmother worked at Spofford and she's telling me, you know, so, so it started really young for me, um, understanding what's going on. And then just as I got older, I just started to write more and more about it. But yeah, I was introduced at a, at a very young age to uh, police brutality. Raymond, if you don't mind for our our listeners out there, give us a give us a two, three minute snapshot of your life, if you can, from the time you were born till now. Oh, wow. I mean, that's a lot. Yes. Two or three minutes. I need like two or three hours. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Yeah. Just just a little taste. <laughs> no, you know, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm a 14 year old kid, you know, never have no experience with the law, you know, just come, you know, trying to find himself and, and this just just this. Traumatic, I go through this traumatic experience, you know, for the next 20 something, 30 something years of my life. And it's been affected, you know, constantly, you know, it's at the point now that um, it's so embedded in me. It's like, you know, we have this saying amongst the five of us that, you know, when we finally pass and we go back to the essence that on our tombstone, you know, the stigma and the, uh, the label of the exonerated five or the Central Park five would never leave. And no matter how it is, and, you know, you'll say, you know, Raymond Santana survived by his daughter, wife and children. You know, there's always going to be that label of the Central Park Five. And this is just something that we didn't ask for, but it stuck with us. And we figured out how to make lemonade out of lemons. Wow. Wow. Uh, you know, Etan, what a topic, what a title of the book, of all the things you could write about. Why, why this? Well, you know, it's uh, you have to have a certain passion about it and connecting with different um, people who have been victims of police brutality. You know, sometimes it's one thing to talk about it, but now let's talk, just paint the picture and show you people who have been actual victims. You know, I interviewed Chakisha Clements, who was, you know, beaten up by the police at a Waffle House. You know, I interviewed Miss um, Laura Dean King, who was Rodney King's daughter. Um, you know, Botham John's uh, sister, um, uh, Tatiana Jefferson's sisters, you know, uh, Sean Montedosa's sister. So we're connecting with, actual firsthand accounts um, who have lost loved ones and they're all trying to do something to to improve the situation where it doesn't keep happening and that usually translates to changing laws and it's so fascinating where you know they've all experienced this they've lost this loved one or you know they've been impacted by police brutality but now they want to change change things so what happened to their loved one or what happened to them doesn't keep happening 
and being able to use the, you know, the platform of a former NBA player and connecting with people like, you know, like Rex Chapman, you know what I mean? <laughs> to be able to continue to promote that and assist and, you know, lend our voices, lend our platforms to it. That was really why I wanted to put the book together. So I want to thank you for, you know, allowing me to interview you for the book as well, because those the voices are, are so important because people listen to, you know, quote unquote celebrities. That, that's, that's so the way you're using your platform, you know, and the, and the way you're using your voice and, you know, your Twitter followers and everything like that, you're bringing stuff to a, to a, to a, to a demographic that might not have paid attention to it before, but they hear it because Rex Chapman is saying it. And that's, you know, that, that's, that's, that's really special that you're doing it. Well, Let me ask I, you, I, you, you interviewed so many people for this and, and, uh, for your book, are there any of the hours of interviews you did that stick out to you immediately that where you were like, this is something I didn't expect was going to happen during this interview? Was anything any of those stick out? Well, I mean, Raymond Santana was one in, in particular. You know, I'm talking to him and, I, and I've, you know, of course, seen, you know, I've done that DuVernay's, um, you know, you know, movie, um, you know, when they see us, I, I, I've seen it, I sat down and watched it with my kids. Um, but in talking to him, the way that he described everything piece by piece, because you never really know how an interview is going to be before you interview someone. You know, I reached out to ask him if he, you know, to interview him for my book. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. I'd, I'd love to. Thank you for doing it. I was like, oh, y'all got to thank me. Thank you. You know what I mean? That type of thing. <laughs> yeah. And so we start we start talking and he's going piece by piece, detail after detail. And I'm just like sitting there amazed. And I'm just like, wow, like that. You know, there's so much stuff that I didn't know, you know, and I'm asking him about different particular parts that are in the movie and he's going into more detail about it and, you know, talking about how it actually affected him and how it impacted him. And, you know, you really see everything through his eyes um, when you're reading the, the the interview in the book. And it's it that one really because I was there, like I have to go back to what we said in the beginning. I was there. I was in Harlem. You know what I mean? One of the things that I remember my my grandmother being nervous about me with because I was younger, but I'm, I was tall for my age. So I looked like I was a teenager, yeah. even though I was young. So I would have been one of the guys that they rounded up because I was wow. I looked like I was a teenager. Wow. So it was like it's personal. So when mm -hmm. I'm looking at and I'm remembering my grandmother, how she said, you know, Donald Trump is put a target on every black and brown kid in Harlem. That's what she was saying. Like, I remember her saying that. And people don't understand the significance of him doing that and how he made it where, you know, we were targets then. And so so that that interview, you know, with Raymond Santana, it really that was impactful. Like I had to I had to take a, you know, lay down for a little bit afterwards. You know what I mean? And decompress and everything. So it, it, was, it was that was that was a that was a tough one. Yeah. So Raymond so just. I'm sure we, we jumped right into this, but obviously Raymond is a, a member of the Exonerated Five, the Central Park Five that were mm -hmm. spent, what, five years in jail before you were exonerated for a crime um, of uh, a lady who was attacked in Central Park, uh, a wiling, you know, um, and put away because there was a fever amongst the society, Donald Trump spearheading it, that someone had to pay and pay immediately. And you guys did. And um what about when you talk to like Eton, what about when you are t talking about that story, when you get to a certain part, what's a part where you get to where, you know, people don't fully understand and realize like you get to the story and 
And then this happened. And a part like where Etan was like, wow, I didn't even know that. Is there a certain part that people are always amazed by when you tell your story? Yeah, there's a, um, I mean, the, the actual the interrogation process, like people, you know, because everybody has a speculation that, oh, if I didn't do it, you know, I have nothing to worry about. You know, I can talk to the police. You know, they can't get me to co- They can't coerce me and get me to say anything. And so, you know, that that part, you know, is still obscure to people. They still don't get it. You know, and for us, you got to you got to you got to just show the whole dynamic. We were 14 to 15 year old kids who never had no dealings with the law. Right. We never had no records or anything. And these were seasoned veteran detectives, 20 plus years on the force. This was the elite of the police force. This was the homicide North detective squad because they thought that Patricia Miley had lost so much blood that it was going to become a homicide case. So they stepped in and they took over the investigation. So this this playing field was unlevel to begin with, you know, and, and for me, you know, the stuff that we see on CSI, you know, the good cop, bad cop, law and order. Those are the tactics that are really used in these precincts. Right. Um, you know, we know that this this thing called the re technique, which is seven steps on how you can get somebody to confess. Right. And when the people who administered and put this technique together, when they are questioned about what happens, you know, can this also uh, convict a, 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 a innocent person? They'll sit back and tell them, you know, we don't, you know, we don't interrogate innocent people. And so this, these techniques are used to unlevel the playing field. And 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 I think the most damaging ingredient is is the, the uh is the level of unknown, not knowing what to expect, right? Is the experience. You know, for me, I never had no dealings with the law, so I didn't know what to expect going in. All I knew that these were authority figures, right? And all they did was that they just broke me down. It's estimated that we was in those interrogation rooms. 15 and 30 hours without food, water, drink, and no sleep. And these are constant police just constantly pounding information into you. And it's done on a psychological level. For a 14-year-old kid, it becomes so embedded that even as a 48-year-old man, I can still talk about it today, word for word, and give you the dialogue. That's how embedded it is. You know, that's this is this is stuff that we live with, and it happens every day all across the country. This is this is this is strategically done. When you look at the budgets that are put behind the prison system, the budgets put behind police departments, everything that's a, everything that's attached, and that's the motivation. How it becomes slave, slave like slavery all over again. You know how how black and brown people are targeted because it has to feed a system that's run on billions of do- dollars, and it, and, it, and it gives out you know hundreds of thousands of jobs. Raymond, I. Guys, I I sit here and I just want to I, I want to Raymond, I want to cry for you. Um, I just, uh, you know, Josh and I talk about this a lot uh, and, you know, we hear it's become, you know, uh, the privilege of white people. And when people hear that, it, when they hear me say it, I don't think people really understand um, the privilege, the privilege that Josh and I have is getting to learn about racism. We, that's the ultimate privilege here. We, I'm sitting here and I'm having to try to put myself in your guys' position. That's that's a privilege. I'm not in that position. I'm not ever going to be in that position. I'm a white guy. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn and I can't, I'm, I can't thank you both enough uh, really for being here today to share this because, you know, it, 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 it's hard to talk about. I know when I go and talk about my past and, and some of the things that I've done and been through, I, it's always hard. When I get done, it's heavy. So 
thank you. Thank you, Raymond, for, for doing this. Yes, thank um, you for, for, for spreading this. I mean, and I'm not trying to be all shucks, but every time I've been somewhere and they said the police are coming, I've been like, good. Yeah. Like every time I've been like, I didn't. And I think as a society over the last five years, uh, with everything that's gone down, we've opened up another door that, you know, I've always considered myself uh, a liberal forward thinking, but I didn't realize the systematic racism that was within uh, the police department, which opened up a, a door to all of society. And I wouldn't understand any of this without what's happened lately and without people talking about it and explaining it. And it's done a service to our society and forwarded us. It's been bumpy and it's, woo, we got a long way to go. But it's because people yeah. shine a light on it, both of you. Thank you very much. But let me, let me also say this, though. Um, and this is the reason why, um, you know, I wanted to interview people like Rex Chapman, like Sue Bird, like uh, Brianna Stewart, um, you know, Kyle Corver, um, white people in particular, Stan Van Gundy for the book, because... Um, for number one, there's a segment of the population that will only hear it if they hear it from white people. That's just reality. That's wow. the way that it is. So hearing Rex Chapman talk about it, um, you know, it just resonates differently. It, it's it's interesting because we're we're just passing, you know, MLK weekend, and um, you know, my daughter, we, we were watching Selma. Uh, my daughter Imani, because we talk about it all the time when it comes up. We was watching Selma a few years ago, um, and she talks about how. You know, if you remember from the movie, you know, they're protesting, they're marching, they're doing everything like that. Um, and then they said, OK, we have to go reach out to the white clergy and everybody else to stand with us. And then they stood with them. Right. Fast forward. And the police didn't attack them. It, they, they had a completely different reaction when they saw all the white people standing with them. Now, fast forward to right now, um, you know, you see at the protests that happened after George Floyd and you saw the, and this was this was what, two years ago, two summers ago. Um, you saw white people standing with the black people and brown people in protests, and you saw the police have different reactions. You saw some white people even form a human shield in front of all the black protesters, and they weren't pepper sprayed. They didn't do the rubber bullets and do all the different stuff. That's a real thing. So having, so going back to what I'm saying is having white allies and having white people that can speak to systemic racism, systemic oppression, call out the Trump administration, call out the, all these different things that Rick Chapman does, that Stan Van Gundy does, that you know Sue Bird and all of them speak to, it's, it's invaluable. To be honest with you, and, and, and it encourages other white people to be able to have the courage to do the same. So, again, Rex, right. I got to say, yeah. thank right. you for doing what you do. Like, I, what I'm well, saying, I don't just mean thanks. it just to give you, you a compliment. It's important work. The Rex Chapman Show, powered by Basketball News, is sponsored by Prize Picks. Prize Picks is the easy way to play daily fantasy. It's daily fantasy simplified. Did you know that, Josh? I didn't. I like simplified and I like fantasy. It's just you versus the projected numbers, Josh. You can pick from two up to five players and an over-under on their projected stats for a single game and win up to 10 times on any entry. Prize Picks is safe and offers fast withdrawals, Josh. I like the sound of this. I like the sound of this. Well, Prize yes, Picks allows mixed sports entries offering every sport you can think of. Your prize pick entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy. You can take the over on Devin Booker's points combined with the under on Aaron Rodgers' passing yards if you want. I like it. 
You can receive a match on your deposits up to $100 using our exclusive promo code NEWS. That's promo code NEWS for an instant 100% deposit match on up to $100. So hold on, that's program code NEWS, N-E-W-S, like the news on TV? That's promo code NEWS for an instant 100% deposit match on up to $100. Guess what else? Prize Picks has an award-winning, easy-to-use mobile app available in the App Store and Google Play. Now, I want to say, because most people out there, they know Dale Curry now. They know Muggsy Bogues. And I've, I've written about this before. I've spoken about it. I don't know if I've really talked about it on the pod, but I want to just tell us a, a little story. You know, I, I grew up in the rural South, but town of about 60,000. I would go to black parties with my friends. I would go to white parties. There were really very few integrated parties, even in the 80s. If the cops showed up out in the country to a bonfire where white kids are drinking, uh, Everybody just kind of is like, all right, well, we're busted. <laughs> if at the black party, if the cops show up, everybody runs. Everybody runs because mm. it's different. Mm. People, they're looking for people to arrest and take downtown that can't afford the bail, whose parents won't be at the jail. Um, all of that stuff. I, I remember vividly being a, a 20-year-old rookie in the NBA and driving to practice, riding to practice with Dell Curry and Muggsy Bogues. They were sitting up front. We're going to Hornets practice, probably speeding in a Mercedes, tinted windows. I'm in the back seat. The cops pull up and Dell rolled the window down and the cop was heated right away. And I could see that this was, this was fucked up and they were getting ready to get Dell and and mugs out of the car when the cop looked in the back seat to me, recognized me and said, Rex. And I went and he went, oh, you got he didn't know them, didn't recognize <laughs> either one of them and let us go mm-hmm. on our way to practice. Yeah. It's just fucked up. It's and then people and and I, I think also there's an advantage to playing basketball. You You grow up if you don't take the time to know what's going on in the lives of your teammates their fan their families know who their kids are what their their family history is you're a bad teammate and from playing as long as i did one of the greatest joys for me was getting to know my teammates in that way and understand because i had a i had a very different upbringing and not saying that it wasn't rough at times and stuff like that but it wasn't rough and and may it might and it stays rough. So thank you guys. Uh, Eton, real quick. Um, mm-hmm. So much in the book. Got to talk about the cover, though. Uh, mm-hmm. Paying tribute to Huey Newton. Uh, why? <laughs> Huey Newton in the chair. Why? Well, because, you know, Huey Newton, in my, in my first book, in my, my previous book, uh, We Matter, Athletes and Activism, it was a tribute to Malcolm X. Um, so I sat down and tried to imitate the pose. And that, that was my tribute to him. And this one, um, I did a tribute to Huey P. Newton. And so I remember when I was reading about the Panthers and the 10 point program and my, my uh, mother used to actually work with the Panthers in Harlem with their breakfast programs um, and where they used to feed um, children before they went to school. And they have the different um, after school programs as well um, and all the things that they were doing. So I started learning about 
um, how to stand up against police brutality and where the, you're, you're looking at the badge number, you're, you know, you're supposed to stand a certain number of feet away from a scene and you can witness what happened. So these are all things that I'm learning when I'm in high school and um, just implementing it and learning more and more. So that's why it was such an honor to have, you know, Fred Hampton Jr. Uh, do the forward. So yeah. knowing about Fred Hampton Jr.'s, you know, everybody saw the movie um, Judas and the Black Messiah. And so it's crazy because I was watching it with my with my uh, son, uh, Malcolm, and he he looked, he was like, wait, so when the police came in at the end, if you remember, the police came in at the end and pointed the gun at his his fiance's stomach. Um, that was Fred Hampton Jr. that was in there. Like, that's just amazing wow. to me, you know? Wow. And he asked yeah. me that, and he was like, that's who you did the forward for your book, right? And I was like, yeah. He was like, wow. You know, and it's just, you know, that it, it's 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 a constant fight and a constant battle. And it's sometimes you can get a little bit discouraged because the battles that they were fighting in the 60s were kind of still fighting now in terms yeah. of police brutality, um, qualified immunity, um, where it's, it's difficult to prosecute them. They're like at a one percent, you know, prosecution rate. Like we get excited when there's one cop that gets, you know, you know, found guilty out of all. All the, you know, it's just still the same struggle, but you have to keep fighting and you have to keep going. So that's, you know, that's that's what it's about. Speaking of speaking of since you brought up film, um, Raymond and all of you, really. But there's been so many uh, movies, uh, dramas, uh, documentaries about your experience. Um, is there one that that you think communicates uh, your feeling the best, like something that like to me? The Ken Burns spoke to me. I've seen, I think, everything, I, you know, I, I, if it's possible, probably not. But I've read a lot and I've seen, I like to uh, take in visually. And I've, so I've seen a lot of stuff. And Ken Burns always, anything Ken Burns, like I, I didn't know that I, what the Dust Bowl was, but I love the dust, you know. Um, so he speaks to me the way he communicates artistically. So that really impacted me. Is there something that impacted you as something that you felt like, wow, they got it right. Um, I mean, Ken Burns, definitely. Cause you know, he did the doc with us and, and, you know, we were, I mean, up to Ken Burns coming in, you know, you guys spoke about it earlier on, on the role of, of people, uh, you know, of different ethnic backgrounds and different nationalities, what do they play? And for us, Ken Burns, was, he was very um, important in our role because we were receiving we were still receiving articles that are written about us all the way up to 2012 saying that we were still guilty of something. And it wasn't until Ken Burns came and he let his voice, which kind of gave us the credibility with white America that really said, wait a minute, something's wrong here with the criminal justice system. You know, so so that, you know, the doc definitely on, on one level, it was it was a wild moment because it, it finally gave us a voice. It finally let people see us as human beings and, and it gave us a voice and it was able to give us a platform. But the Ava DuVernay, when they see us peace, for us, you know, at this point, we had already beat the system. We went against the system. Um, we were still, you know, we was um, we were still doing a lot of work. And and when this piece comes along, we're at a different level in our lives. We're grown now. Um, we have a voice and we're ready to speak our truth. And and with the Ava DuVernay piece, um, each member went deeply into his history. And there was a lot of stuff that the five of us didn't really know until we actually saw it together. And then it was like, it became wild moments all over again. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. 
You know, Etan, uh, you have a section uh, in the book about these stories on Christianity and the way it's become entangled with uh, sort of American traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you rectify your Christianity with the great, with the way uh, the religion ha- has been used? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I, I think it's, you know, as a Christian, um, I, I wanted to go and to reach out to different Christians to speak about this. So I went just reached out to uh, Bishop Talbert Swan, who doesn't hold his tongue on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wrote, spoke to um, Chris Boussard, um, who is a strong Christian and is, but is willing to 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 point out the hypocrisy of the white evangelicals, the, the the Trump supporters who you know say one thing on one hand, you know, but then the complete opposite—that is not what Jesus would do. On the other hand, um, I and I interviewed uh, Steph Curry uh, for that chapter, and he's talking about what Christianity means to him and what his faith means to him. And it was interesting because you know in that in that section he's he's talking about how. Um, he couldn't find it within himself to support Donald Trump because he goes against everything that he believes in as a Christian. And he was like, how could I support him? And he just started listing that. He's like, it could be all day listing different things that Donald Trump, you know, it, it embodies and what he's about and promotes. And, and so, you know, but in that chapter, we, we went even back further, um, especially with Bishop Talbert Swan and to how, you know, even from changing the, the image of Jesus to look like a white man and why it was done that way and where Christianity, you know, is is originated in the, you know, ancient, you know, Coptic, um, you know, religion in Africa. But the, 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 the change for American slavery and how it was used to justify slavery and implement slavery um, was strategically done. And we talk about it and we talk about how, but a lot of times people say it and they're, 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 it, 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 it happened, but there is people that use religion in certain ways. And you can find those people in a lot of different religions. They're not really trying to be true to whatever that religion is. They're trying to see how they can use it to benefit themselves. And that's what happened um, here in this country with Christianity and uh, slavery and the implementation of it all the way up until now, as you see with the white evangelicals. So it is, it's a deep chapter to say the least. No question about it. Um, you know, I, I, uh, we all, I think we try to, I hope we all try to look at life through others, other people's vantage points. And, and I want to, I want to ask you this because it, it's, been stuck with me for over a year now. You know, I think about the what happened a year, a little over a year ago at the Capitol. Mm. And there's really not a day goes by that I think if there'd have been a hundred thousand black, black and brown folks charging the Capitol like that, that there would have been a lot more than, you know, one dead civilian or a couple dead civilians out there. Mm. You know, it, it would have been littered. And I, I just I can't get the th- I can't get the thought out of my mind. You have a section of the book on on January 6th. And I, I want to ask, what did that event and the way we're processing it a year later teach us about America? And uh, yeah. Yeah. What do you so, think? So one of the people that I interviewed for that was um, well, I interviewed Jamel Hill. And she really made the point of how this would look a lot different if it was black people. Um, the point that you made and the white supremacy of Donald Trump and 
you know, why she called him a white supremacist when she was with ESPN. So she talked about that. But I interviewed Jake Tapper from CNN and he spoke to the media. And this was really, and this ties back into what happened with the Central Park Five. The media is, there's a reason why Malcolm X said that the media is the most powerful entity on earth because it has to be able to, it has the ability to shape people's opinions and, and how they view different things. And the media and the way that they were describing January 6th, the same way they were describing the Central Park Five, um, was to sway the public to think one thing. So in January 6th, um, leading up to it, the media, and this is what Jake Tapper called out, that the media people who took part in this big lie that the Trump administration put together, that the election was somehow stolen for them, that drummed up all of this animosity and all this everything leading up to the January 6th should be held responsible for the events that took place. Now, and, and, and similarly with, with um, the Central Park Five, all the media who drummed up and said, oh, they're guilty, they should be executed, this is, these are animals, these are all the just languages that they use, they should be held accountable as well, especially after the evidence proved that they were innocent. They didn't go back and retract. We were wrong. We were, we, you know, we apologized to their families. There's still no, and I asked, I asked Raymond this during the interview. I was like, so to this day, has Trump apologized to y'all? And he was like, no. And I was like, to this day, right now, he has still not apologized to you, even though all the evidence. So that that it's really showing the power of the media and how people aren't being held accountable for their actions. And that's that's the parallel between the two? Oh, it's so much. It's so much. <laughs> uh, I, I go back, uh, Raymond, go back to your 14. You know, what, I don't even know that you can do this. What, at that point, that kid's point in his life, what, what were your hopes and dreams? Do, can you even, can you ever even think about that? I mean, for me, 14 year, old, 14 year old Raymond, you know, I used to, I love the sketch. Um, I love listening to hip hop music. Like I was just a 14 year old kid. There wasn't no real pressure on me to, to pick a profession, right? You know, I just, I had to be home by nine o'clock. That was it, you know, get my homework done. You know, if I wanted the latest sneakers, I had to have good grades. It was, you know, I came from a middle class family. So, you know, the, you know, there wasn't a lot of pressure on a 14 year old kid, you know, who was just trying to figure his way. You know, until until that night, until that night when I'm in the police uh, interrogation room. And that's the first time that I ever come across extremely, uh, 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 extremely uh, large amount of pressure. You know, that was my first experience with it. Yeah. People think about it. I mean, it's one thing to say, but if you think about yourself at 14, yeah. I mean, uh, I was just, you know, maybe just stopped riding my bike. You know, like you were you, 14 is so young. Um, and, and, and it's true, too. Like, Yutana, it's like I was I grew early and, and, and you can get treated differently, you know, just obviously by mm -hmm. by your looks. But uh, 14 to think about uh, uh, this idyllic life. And then I mean, in a matter of hours, wham, your your entire life is changed literally like that from a, the innocence of 14 years old, I, I just can't comprehend any yeah, of it. Yeah. 14. And, and not even knowing what to do, like not even having an outlet, right? Because at this point, 
the articles are being written within the first two weeks. There's over 400 articles written about us, right? Calling us Wolfpack animals, urban terrorists. And so not even knowing what to do, because at that point, even Ken Burns said that he said, in 1989, we were five of the most hated human beings on the planet Earth. Yeah. And so not even having an outlet to even understand where do I go? Like, what do I do? How do I relieve the pressure? No, we just had to just handle it. I mean, we were in the newspaper every day for the next two and a half years, mm. you know, until everybody was done with their trials. And, and that's just how it went. Um, and so as a 14-year-old kid, I mean, I, people, you know, I, sometimes I'm just I'm just happy that. I made it out and I still have my faculties, you know, saying that I can still smile, you know, that even though it's a, it's a, it's a one day is one step at a time and it's a day by day process. I'm blessed that I'm, I'm here to live that process and, and to still enjoy the moments, you know? And so I don't know how do we get here. I mean, yeah, that's what it is. You're remarkable. You called the, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Etan, um, you, what did talking to retired police officers uh, teach you about policing, if if anything? Uh, right. So I interviewed um, quite a few retired police officers, uh, one in particular, um, Officer Carlton Wicker. Um, you know, it, it specifically that works with the NYPD that worked in, in New York. And we talked specifically about this case. And, you know, we, we, we talked about how it was almost like after having the talk with young people who are reading it, like an outline of, you know, what to do and what not to do when you're stopped by the police. And it's something that they didn't have the privy to be able to even, you know, somebody to teach them that, um, you know, but my, my grandmother, I remember she, I, I got taught that at such a young age because my grandmother worked at Spofford. So you, she mm -hmm. used to see so many different cases that would happen where, you know, the, 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 the kids wouldn't have done anything wrong, but the police, you know, use whatever, like they ran first. So then that's what they get them on. Even though they didn't do anything wrong for the police to even come up to them and accost them in the first place. You know what I mean? Or there's just certain things like no sudden movements. And th these are things that, you know, it it's interesting. I I, um, I just watched The Hate You Give with my uh, baby girl, baby Sierra. Um, fantastic movie, if you haven't seen it. But it, in the beginning, um, the, the father is telling the, the, the his daughter and his son, having to talk about what to do when, when you're stopped by the police, you know, you put your hands on the dashboard, you don't, ha you don't, ha you know, no sudden movements, even if they ask you to get your license, you know, you don't just go ahead and go get it. You say, okay, I'm, you know, going into my back pocket to reach for my license that you just asked me for. Is that okay? And you go very slow. So those are the things that black families and Brown families have to teach their kids mm from a young age and those, that's just, it's just not a white experience. Like white parents don't have to worry about that with their kids. It's just reality. But one of the things that, that, mm -hmm. that um, I was able to show with this book and, and more so the last book was athletes telling that story. Because a lot of times people think athletes are in this protective bubble. We're like, no, I'm, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. so I gotta do that too. You know what I mean? Like they, they, they look at me, I'm, First of all, I'm 6'10", I'm, I'm a black man, I got dreadlocks, I'm immediately, they're afraid. So I have to go extra mm -hmm. careful. And ex So in talking to the different police, going back to your original question, sorry, I went off on a little tangent, but, okay. but going, talking to the police, they recognize that there is a problem in the way that we police in this country. And they're telling of different ways that, you know, 
they would like to see change happen. Now, a lot of times they're removed, the people who I interviewed, they're removed from the police department and now they're working in different ways to be able to, you know, either push for laws to be changed, a push for training to be changed, push for funding to be changed, you know, funding going to and towards different directions of people who are actually trained to handle uh, certain things and they're, and they're not that funding being allocated to all policemen when they're not trained well, to handle it. You know that what brings I mean? me. That, that, I'm glad you said that. There's a section in the book that you know details, uh, you know, that defund the police, and right. a lot of mainstream Democrats, of course, saying, mm-hmm. "Well, that that cost us votes. Terrible." Blah blah blah. But you right. think it matters? Tell us why. Well, it definitely matters. Um, and it's it's you know, I interviewed the uh, the brother of uh, Corey McCoy, a uh, Willie, uh, Willie McCoy, and his name the the brother I interviewed is named Corey McCoy. And his his brother, if you don't remember, his um, brother was killed at a Taco Bell. He was um, he was asleep in the parking lot, and the person who was inside the worker said, "Call the police and said um, we have someone who is asleep. Can you just call, go and check on them?" That was the call. Not that he had a gun. Not that there was a threat. Not that there was any violence. That he's asleep, and can you check on him? And the police came. And they just unloaded into him. Like, and they said they thought they saw a gun. There was no gun. You know what I mean? He had like his phone in the cup holder or something like that. And, you know, the, the, the point of interviewing him and telling the story and showing everything is, is going back to why the police don't need to be the ones who are called in a wellness check situation or a mental health check situation because they'll tell you, and, and you hear it straight from the police that I interviewed, they're not trained to handle those situations. They're trained for if you're if you're if 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 your training is to deal with everything with a hammer, then everything is gonna look like a nail. And you're gonna look to do like this with every single thing. And that's how they're trained. So why would you put them in schools? You know what I mean? Like elementary, middle school, high school kids who are don't have, why would you put them there? Why they call a resource officer? So why would you, you know, put them with so the same with Tatiana Jefferson? Um, you know, her family that the labor called to to check on the on their their neighbor who was, you know, the back door was open. Again, it was a wellness check. Make sure that they're OK. The police came and shot her through the window, didn't even go in the window. She's in her house. But that's the way that they have. So that the, the point of those is Republicans have weaponized defund the police like they weaponized critical race theory, like certain terms, and they just, it's weaponized and it's, it's made to mean something else. But the problem mm-hmm. is so many times Democrats have been like, okay, they won the PR battle, so now let's change this and let's worry about it. And then we start talking about something that doesn't even have anything to do. No, we can't accept their definition of it because it's not the true definition of what it is. Like it's important to have people who are trained to deal with a certain situation be the ones who are called to deal with it. That's just common sense. But if you change it to something else, then it means something else. So that's, that's you know, what detailing that entire chapter, you know, is, is really about. You know, but it's, it is, <clears throat> count me amongst those that I, I the, the PR battle is important. Mm-hmm. And, and, <clears throat> That is the issue. It's been weaponized and used as a dog whistle for mm-hmm. people who aren't 
on this, you know, talking about this all the time and they just see a commercial because I know they got commercials here for the, the governor's race, the mm-hmm. governor here, the Republican. At the end, it's like and you have to stop the radical left socialists, all the dog whistles that right. want to defund the police. Yeah. And, it, and 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 I get annoyed because it is so easily weaponized. If we mm-hmm. just yeah. said and let me know if this would be wrong, you know, restructure the police, because that's mm-hmm. essentially what you're talking about. But to immediately people, middle America here, well, I don't I, I don't want the police to go away. I don't want that. And and it's used that way. And it yeah. PR is important. So it annoys me that that's used because it's so easily weaponized. It, and, and you talk about I don't want to. I don't want to change what they originally really meant. Right. But to I, I just wish that uh, more thought goes into it because it's so easy to weaponize. Well, and, well, here, here, here's and the thing, though. Middle, middle America. Well, here's the thing, though. This, and I interviewed Mark Lamont Hill in this chapter, and he talked about how no matter what we called it, that would be weaponized, no yeah. matter what it was. So whether we called it, you know, restructuring the funding of the yeah. police or, yeah. you know what I mean? Whatever the term is, then that would have been the thing that would be weaponized. So we can't worry so much about that, but just more, you know what I mean? But that's the games of politics where they're like, OK, you're trying to appease this side to be able to come over here and do that. And nothing gets done. So, right. so that's the frustrating part. So throughout the book, all these different people who are, you know, survivors of police brutality, family members of people who have been killed by the police. They're fighting to get things done and they're running into roadblocks because of things that like this, like the terminology of what of what both sides agree would be better uh, for policing as a whole. Do you know what I mean? Like, but it, yeah. but it becomes politicized and weaponized and then nothing gets done. And that's the yeah. that's the problem. Right. <laughs> well, it's, I, I could talk to you guys all day. Um <laughs> We, we got to come back and, and talk some more, talk some more. Uh, I'd love to have you on again, Raymond, Eton. We'll talk some basketball mm-hmm. next time. Um, yeah. I want to say one thing before we go uh, mm-hmm. again, and, and it's about privilege. You know, Josh and I will take our – people will watch this episode or they'll, they'll, they'll post some shit online about uh, us being race baiters or mm-hmm. something – mark my words. And – what I've what I've realized over time is that the people that say that shit are people that feel like they're being told on. It's not that what we're saying is incorrect. It's that they feel like we're telling on them and they're old, old, awesome. <laughs> old sort of old Republican bullshit. And I, I think it was FDR that said it's unanimous. Their hatred of me is unanimous. And I welcome their hatred because it's that time. It's that time, guys. So I can't thank you enough for enlightening Josh and I coming on here, helping us to um, to spread a, an important word that hopefully in our lifetimes we'll we'll see some significant progress on. So thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank, thank you. you. And also, I do want to say, because, Itan, you, you touched on it, you know, white people, there's a certain group of white people that need to hear it from white people. And from my perspective, you should, it's with Rex, who's, who, who talks about social injustice so much. And from where I'm sitting, like, of course, it's a that's that's a winning topic to me. That's exactly what we want. But it's been enlightening for me to see the vitriol 
that's been yeah. pointed towards Rex for that. Oh. And I'm like, what? I, I, this wow. is an easy, like who would not think, oh, this is a great message, but it's amazing, the vitriol. And that's been enlightening to me. So thank all of you, you know, obviously, yeah, I mean, you guys for spreading it. Rex, thank you for, for using your platform that way too. And, and today having them on, it's, this has taught me stuff. So thank all of you so much. Team game, team game. Etan, Raymond, thanks so much, thank guys. We'll, Hold on, we'll real quick, again. real quick, real oh, quick. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. What's uh, both of you, favorite movie? Ah. Uh, <laughs> ooh, on the spot. You know, it's, it's funny. All right, all right. So, so I've watched probably Coach Carter with my son at least 50 times. Okay. At least 50 okay. times. All right. Okay. I'll take Maybe. it. Um, I'm gonna have to say blue chips. Okay. First time seeing Shaq. Blue chips. Yeah. One of my favorites. Dude, All right. Yeah. This last question into kind of like two, so it could be if okay, if you could have dinner with anybody, dead or alive. See, I can't pick with just one person. I know. Like I understand that. I understand that. It had to be like a few people. So, yeah. so All right. throw a couple. Yeah. So first, you know, of course it. it I would love to sit with Jesus. That's number one. Um, love to sit with Bob Marley. Love to sit with Malcolm X. Um, you know, love to sit with Hugh P. Newton. Yeah. Um, you know, Angela Davis. I mean, there's so many. Maya Angelou. I, I could go down the list, but yeah, uh, that, that would be amazing. I can't even, can't even imagine yeah. sitting down with Angela It's a Davis. tough question. It is. <laughs> right. yeah. Only like to pick one movie, it's apples and oranges. I get yeah. it. So I'm putting yeah. it on top. Raymond, <laughs> who, who are you going to have dinner with? Um, mine should be, we was very close to doing this and we couldn't because unfortunately he had got sick and he passed away, but it was Nelson Mandela. Oh, wow. 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 Yeah. Oh. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And then lastly, for the, uh, front row center to watch a concert with anyone dead or alive front row center. Bob Marley and Michael Jackson. I, right. I can't pick one. I can't yeah, do one. Okay. Mine will have to be front row Jay Z. Let's go. Let's oh. go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fellas. Thanks so much. It's uh, been a blast. It. Appreciate All it. Right. Thanks Thank again. You. Appreciate it. Thank you. Team right, Gates. Team Gates. Later, fellas. Well, Josh. Eton Thomas, Raymond Santana. That was that was a uh, that was fun. That was it. So uh, enlightening. Plus, plus, how about the I shot the sheriff? Come on, that's a great concert. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was like. I mean, I've I've seen Raymond in so many things. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, Eton. I want you know I'm a basketball fan, but see Raymond. And it's such a socially loaded and impactful time in, in, in American history. And to see him live here, I was just like, I was kind of blown away because I've seen, you know, the documentaries, the Ken Burns yeah. of it all. Uh, thank you for putting that together and let me be a part of it. Come on, bro. Uh, thank you. I mean, I, I, I'm in awe of those guys. Eton as well, you know, just uh, – is he's just so curious and you know that that that's the thing that i find the most fascinating about the, uh, about being in sports because uh, and growing up 
and being so fortunate to play sports for a long time is that yes, everybody that you are on a team with, they have passion to a certain standpoint for, for basketball. Uh, you have to, and, but most of the most, most of the, a lot of the joy that I found what was having teammates like Eton Thomas, and they're not a lot of them, but who are super passionate about some something else and something. Uh, Wayman Tisdale, for instance, Wayman liked basketball, liked it. He loved playing that bass. He traveled with the bass on the road. Um, that was his jam. You knew that's what he was going to do. Passed away early. But Eton, very much so. I just find it fascinating that those guys had full, you know, terrific. Eton played 11 years in the league. And, you know, really, I think this stuff was always more important, as it should have been. Mm -hmm. But I just, uh, I, I'm, so, uh, I'm so appreciative that they came on. And, uh, you know, look, I, I want to say this, too, because – We'll get a lot of people, I'm sure, that will talk about, oh, you guys hate the police. Don't, I don't hate the police. I know very, I know so many police officers, and we hear this. You no, know, there are good police officers. I get it. I get it. But when you're on a, when you play on a bad team <laughs> with other, with, if you, even if you're a good player and you play on a bad team with a bunch of guys who act crazy, you're going to be labeled as, you know, a bad player on a bad team. So, you know, I grew up with Glenn Skeens. Uh, he's the chief of police in Owensboro, Kentucky, one of the best guys in the world. Love him. Married my uh, uh, good friend, um, Kelly Morris. She played high school basketball. We grew up together. Same neighborhood. Uh, love Glenn Skeens. It's got nothing to do with disliking, disliking the police. It's an unbelievably hard job. We just have to do better. We just have to do better. That's all. Right? Yeah. Like, like – uh... Um, yeah, I've got sidetrack that, that are police yeah. you know, that, that I, that I love that. It, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I certainly appreciate the job they do every hey. day. Um, but it's been enlightening through, you know, the last George Floyd period where it's just enlightening that it was to know it was so systematic and I didn't realize it, that it's a systematic race. It's something that's been built in that we just have to address and work on. And we can't work on it if it's not addressed. And you, know what I, you know what I think about all of that constantly with regard to George Floyd is that thank goodness there were video, the video cameras were there. Thank goodness there were people there. But here, here's the other thing. The people that were there, were predominantly black and brown people. And I think about all the time, if you, Josh Hopkins, or me, Rex Chapman, had been there, standing right there, the, the uh, outrage that I would have been showing, like, what are you doing? Hoping people would see, oh, look, that's me. That's Rex Chapman throwing a fit over there. And maybe the whole thing would have stopped. Right. I, I, I well, you know, all like... I know you're trying to go to sleep and you think about the yes. George Floyd incident, all right. of every, as a human, you put yourself there. The first time I saw it, I was like, 
Would I just tackle the policeman? Yes, this would have never yes. happened. I'd have gone to jail. No one would have known that I just fucking saved the whole, you know, I wouldn't have known. But like, would you have done it? You always put yourself. See, in I, see the, the fucked up thing is, see, I think if you and I would have run in there and tackled somebody, nobody would have shot us. Yeah. Nobody no. would have shot no. us. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's what 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 you but learn. That's e what we're but if Eton or Raymond had run in there and tacked, done, they're done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's uh, like <laughs> I said to friends, it's the same way. Like my friend was like, what is with all these? All of a sudden, there's all these sharks and shark attacks. You see people. I said, no, it's not more oh, sharks, stupid. It's more cameras. Yeah. So friends are like, wow, all of a sudden, the police are just attacking a lot of black people. Yeah. I'm like, that's yeah, all we, it's, no, we have cameras. It's more cameras, not more no, violence. It's always it's just, been there. The sharks have always been swimming under us. We just didn't yes. have drones. That's right. That's right. Uh, well, it's not been much of a basketball segment. Uh, however, Let's touch on a little basketball before we go. Uh, KD's out, a little bit hurt. The Nets are struggling up and down. The Phoenix Suns, however, are rolling, 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 rolling. Um, 48 the other night, I think. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. are rolling. They, that's cohesion. That's being together. And that's you, it's interesting to see them grow every year, you know, since they uh, won out in the bubble. And yeah. then the next year we make the finals and damn near won that thing. And I know. You just, and you just see them stepping up. Baby steps. And I think, you know, last year, obviously, you hope that it's a growing process. Everybody had to go through it and all that. What I'm hoping for right now, and I know a lot of players that, like, aren't in all-star consideration and many coaches are really looking forward to having several days off for the all-star break. I'm hoping that the Suns continue to win. And Monty and his staff, Monty Williams and his staff are the all-star coaches. That's mm -hmm. what I'm really hoping because I feel like that's another step for the team yeah, yeah. and the squad and those players trusting the staff. Uh, so anyway. Why are, the right. Bulls so good? Why are the Bulls so good, Rex, this year? Oh, man. Uh, players. Players. And, <laughs> well, they're and Lonzo Ball. Lonzo is a, you know, everybody talked about him being Jason Kidd like coming out from the time you could watch. He's Jason Kidd like. Don't get me wrong. He's not as good as Jason. They're different. They're different. But he's a dream to play with. All he wants to do is pass the ball. Zach Levine can play the true two guard spot, score spot now. And DeMar DeRozan is just. Well, he's a grown man, and he's got it all figured out at this stage of his career. And then they've got a bunch of guys who can pass that know how to play. Uh, Alex Caruso, I love. We love that guy from the time he was in college. I'm just happy to see what he does. They just and they got a bunch of dogs who get after you. They'll 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 play hard to fight. Um, and lastly, let me ask you this: Is there yeah. because it's turned so quickly, and the, is there a GM out there that today? would take, going forward, would take yep. Zion over Ja? So uh, GM. Ooh, I, I don't know. I, it, it's so, you know, that's, that's a great question, Josh. And there probably are. Yeah, no, there probably are. But I, I saw our guy Stan Van Gundy had, said something the other day, and I thought it was pretty spot on. He was going over, you know, all the people hating on Zion. 
and he had gone back over whatever it is. Let's say, you know, if Zion should have played, what is it now by now? 90 games or something? Or, right. or no, he's missed more than that. At the same stage in his career, he's played more games than Joel Embiid did at the same stage of his career a few years ago. That's the thing so, I would say. It's like, don't, don't, they're young. Embiid this. You know, yeah, and he's stuck in this place where people are worried if he's going to Embiid or uh, or the what's the Ohio State center that came out that couldn't come uh, out. Uh, yeah, Greg Oden. Yeah, or Greg yeah. Oden. You know, which yeah. is his, is the injuries going to go this way yeah. or this way? It's like he's in that exact median point where he could come back and be a dominant all star, or he could be uh, Greg Oden. Yeah. You know, the, and it takes us to another really good point. So well done, Josh. I And it's something that I say to you, you know it. Uh, we'll talk about guys at Kentucky who we love. You know, um, we, wa- we want those guys to be 25 when they're 19, mm-hmm. right? We, mm-hmm. And we say it all. And people get down on the Kentucky players or, or they'll get down on a, a Julius Randle playing in the NBA out in Los Angeles and then being bounced over the Pelicans. You gotta always remember they'll be 25 someday. Yeah. You know, Malik Monk right now. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's had a couple of tough years in Charlotte. Malik's 23. <laughs> and he's just now starting to find his root rhythm out in Los Angeles. He'll be 25 someday. And sometimes with talented guys like that, you just gotta wait a little while. Mm, let me ask but, you finally, yeah, because the talk is because you've talked about like the moment that. Um, Steve Nash realized I got to get my body right. I, yeah. I'm going to do this. I, uh, Luca needs that moment, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's the concern. It's always been underlying concern. People are like, oh, they love him in Dallas, but they're a little concerned. He likes to get after a little bit. And and how how good would he be if he just brought the whole team and and was disciplined because he's so. Yeah, you know, I saw him warming up the other night, and immediately I said, oh, he's a little fat. That's what I, I, I just saw. He looked a little pudgy. Uh, I know that uh, they've acknowledged that he's a little heavy. Um, I'm, And then at the end of that night, while he was pudgy and not, you know, not in very – you could tell he's not in great rhythm. He had like 29, 13, and 8. He's, he's a problem. Um, he's sort of a throwback, you know, a bit of a throwback who I think likes to get after it a little bit, go out at night. And, um, he's probably never had to lift weights his whole life because he's been so big and strong. The thing with that is it will catch up with you at some point. My gut feeling is he's going to be just fine. Um, he he's, you know, the kind of competitor slash killer that he is. He's probably reveling right now. Charles used to do this, Barkley. Charles played half the time out of shape mm. and 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 busted you while doing it. You just hoped you didn't run into Charles late in the year while he was getting the into playoff shape right. where he where he had second and third and fourth efforts, you know, going after things. Uh Luca, he'll get there, I think. And and, and you just thought, what what's is Luca 23? I mean, yeah, he's so young. So He's this amazing. is sort of a, he'll do, you talk about people's games, they work, and Malik, and, and they'll be 25 someday. 
mentally, he will yeah. be 25 right. someday. He'll be like, all right, enough of this. I'll, I'll get after it, you know, as soon yeah. as the season's over. Yeah, uh, the only yeah. risk, the only risk with that, the, well, the big risk, well, the, you know, you're not as good as you can be because you're not being as dedicated as you need to be. That's the big thing. That's the over overriding thing. But he's a, uh, he's a, uh, I kind of lost train of my thought. Well, he's, he, he's so fun <laughs> to watch, but I'm, I'm bummed that he's not full Luca because oh, I, yeah. I want to see it. He's dirty. He's just so dirty. <laughs> I love is. him. He's filthy. All right, buddy. We better run. Uh, okay. Next week, we'll be back for episode 32. That was 31. We'll do it again this time next week here on the Rex Chapman Show with super cool Josh Hopkins powered by basketballnews.com.